Welcome to a new edition of Literal Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This time, my guest is Max Borders. Max Borders is an executive director of Social Evolution, a non-profit startup dedicated to liberating people and solving social problems. He is also co-founder of the Voice and Exit Conference, and he is the author of the book um, The Social Singularity. So, in this episode, we talked a lot about how technology shapes our cultural evolution as well as the, as the evolution of our consciousness. Uh, we talked about a lot about Ray Kurzweil and collective intelligence and uh, AI and stuff like that. I think um, this is a very important topic because I'm a huge proponent of um, the potentials which lie in podcasting and AI and stuff like that. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Um, all the best to you guys and good luck with everything. All right then, Max, thank you very much for being on this episode of, of uh, this podcast, for joining me here. Oh, hey, I'm, I'm delighted. Let's just start with, with you and, and how you came about to be a futurist and write this book about um, the social singularity. You're also an entrepreneur. I, I, I saw have a website, socialevolution.com. So, but, but a little bit background. Sure. Your- yeah. I think, I think um, it's, it's a, it's a strange and tortuous background. I started, uh, I started in as a philosopher of all things, uh, trained in philosophy in graduate school and, um, and then needed to get a job. Uh, needed to get a real job, as they say. I did teach in higher ed for a while, but I really did want to go to work in the private sector. And uh, so I had some friends who connected me with, uh, who were writing for Accenture Tech Labs. And the, I really got into emerging technologies. This was around 2000, the first tech bubble. Uh, I don't know if you recall that, that bubble having burst, but it was, it was, After uh, everybody was very excited indeed about the potential of the internet and some of the biggest companies that we enjoy today were, were just really getting started. You know, the, the eBay's Amazon's and the like were, were, you know, the first generation, but there were a lot of emerging technology companies around at that time before the great fallout. And I just got, uh, interested in technology and its ability to shape uh, to shape our uh, our culture, our uh, to create social change and essentially to shape our destinies. Right. So for me, weaving together innovation and entrepreneurship and philosophy is has been uh, part of my trajectory, I guess, up to this point. Right. And so and and. W- then you became a futurist and what does it take to, to be a futurist nowadays? So that I think you just, you just say that you are <laughs> right. All right. No, I think, I think for, for me, it's been um, getting into the cryptocurrency space early, having done a lot of work in the, in the emerging technology space and lo- learning to look at trends in ways that are interesting and, I think having something of an, I, I also used to, to be an editor for uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, which is an uh, economic education, as the name suggests, outfit uh, here in the U.S. And um, I got to do a whole lot with, with economic thinking or the economic way of thinking. This allows one to at least tentatively look at the future in, in interesting ways. So uh, bringing all of those experiences and interests to bear is, is how I get to emblazon my shirt with, with the letter F for futurist. But um, I'll let your, your listeners be the judge. Right. And when, when did you zone in into this futurist thought which you expressed I, in the book? Well, um, I, for me, it's been, um, I've always been dissatisfied with politics as a mechanism of social change. And that, that dissatisfaction has taken me to, to areas such as technology innovation as a superior means, um, in my view. And this is a reframing that I don't think a lot of people have, have made, at least here in my country. Um, and so it, 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 you know, 
the, the dissatisfaction with politics as a mechanism of social change really caused me to look at what, what is on the horizon in terms of um, in creating new, new tools and new rules. This, um, this is one of the biggest themes of the book, I have to say. There's a, a, a social theorist named Marshall McLuhan who was uh, around in the 20th century, and he's credited with saying the following, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Whether he said this or not doesn't matter. It's a great, it's a great quote. Whoever said it, it was fantastic. Um, but we'll, we'll credit it to Marshall McLuhan. And that really has become a th- the, uh, one of the major threads of the book. And, or, and, and the reason for that, I think, is the tendency for tools or technologies to shape us and our behaviors, both in our behaviors and culturally, is woefully underestimated, I think, in contemporary society. I also believe that likewise, uh, we, can, we can form a corollary to that because if technologies and tools shape our behaviors, so also do rules. So we shape our rules and then our rules shape us. Uh, and this is, um, uh, again, my interest in economics, particularly in the idea of institutional economics, which is, again, woefully underappreciated in the academy. Some of the institutional economists really understand how the rules of the game can shape our behaviors and our cultures because rules automatically create incentive systems. Right. And those incentive systems are absolutely vital to, to the, the way we behave on, on aggregate. Um, so I, I've become more and more interested in rules and tools as a, as means of shaping human behavior. And that is in great measure, um, how I came to write the book. Right. Uh, rules and tools. I mean, I, I think one of the best examples is the printing press of Gutenberg, who played probably a huge part in uh, bringing on a more modern age of enlightenment because while freeing us from the dogma of the church. And so, or in, in, in terms of spiral dynamics, let's say like a um, transition from a blue to a more orange. Absolutely. So, and, and there we see, How, how the technology shaped us. So I was thinking about this because... Beautiful then, example. Yeah, I, I, I was, listen, I was um, thinking about this in the context of cryptocurrency because there was this bubble last year and everyone was like completely hyped. And, mm-hmm. and, but I was thinking in terms of, okay, maybe, maybe that's a kind of technology that will shape us. Maybe not now but maybe in the next 50, 80 years to come. What, what, what do you make of that, of that kind of development? I'm, kind of I'm very, very hopeful indeed about the potential for cryptocurrencies to, to shape us, both culturally and otherwise. Um, I think, and, and so much so, in fact, that um, I believe that what these technologies have the potential to do is to lower the costs of exit from any given system. So what do you, what do you mean by that? So think about um, going back to this discussion of rules and tools. Cryptocurrencies are both tools and rules in one. And if you think about the, the, the rules by which we live, for example, in, in our respective countries, um, did you say this is a German audience? Yeah. Also, lass uns Deutsch die ganze Zeit, ne? <laughs> no, 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 no. Just kidding. <laughs> well, that was not bad. <laughs> um, the, you know, in our respective uh, countries, um, we have different op- rule sets, uh, social operating systems that are, that in some sense shape our behaviors, guide who we are and how we behave. And um, historically, this has always been attached to a couple of ideas. Well, it's, it's quite literally rules have been attached to territories. Um, that's been, you know, either an artifact of history or conquest that rules seem to, to, to go atop territories. And why is that? It doesn't even occur to us to think about rules as being divorced from territories because historically uh, that was the emergent phenomenon was you, you know, from, for example, the uh, agrarian 
revolution. We had, we had an agricult well, agricultural settling that took us from a state of hunter-gatherer to settled agriculture. That was the planted the seeds, as it were, for civilizations to spring up. And these were primarily hierarchical. And the reason they were hierarchical were these tribal bands settled and then had to protect territories and resources. And when you protect territories and resources, you form hierarchies in order to swiftly engage in, in, in battle to protect that territory. But also then you have bureaucratic and otherwise mechanisms that over time build top these structures and so on and so forth in, 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 a, in a kind of uh, a development of layers of civilization. But this, this, um, this causes us, I think, or biases us in a way that, that though understandable, uh, now we, for the first time in human history, or not, perhaps not the first time in human history, but certainly um, it's become the most realistic, we can start to think about living in rule sets that aren't attached to territory and instead exist in the cloud. So right. we might call that cloud governance. And cryptocurrencies are the first cryptocurrencies tokens these are the first um the first signs of what we might uh w- how we might live in cloud governance in other words uh exist or operate in rules that are not necessarily attached to territory well why would we do that historically it's because because if you didn't someone would would flog you or throw you in jail now the reason would we do that is because we see the benefits of certain in- kinds of institutions. Some are better than others. Some social operating systems work better than other social operating systems. Sure. Um, the German social operating system works better than the Greek one in, in, in many folks' opinion. I think the Swiss system is among, is, it could be very well be the best in the world uh, in the way that uh, the institutions give rise to prosperity and peace and so on. So now that we've come to understand that certain rule sets need not always, and in every case in here in terra firma, we can start to choose our institutions. Right. And this is what we're doing. And with cryptocurrencies, we're doing it without middlemen, which is very, very interesting. Right. And what do you make of the current development of, of cryptocurrency? Because the, the prognostics are not so... Uh, have not such a good outlook, I, I guess. Well, in the short term, I think that's that's fine. Um, but this is uh, remember we started the we started our conversation talking about the first tech bubble having burst in 2000, and and here we are. Uh, those, many of those technologies are still with us. Some of them are not. Some of those companies are not. But I think what you find is, and and there's a an analyst group called Gart- the Gartner group and the Gartner group has what it calls the hype cycle. Okay. And What's that? The, the Gartner hype cycle is a curve. It's a graph that shows initially. So if you imagine the X, Y axes, I think it's, it goes like this. Um, uh, you imagine this time being uh, the, the bottom axis and, and then you have the level of hype going up uh, on the uh, uh, up and down axis. The as we move through time, we see this this accelerated interest that's what we might call irrational and overly optimistic and hopeful. Everybody's trying to get in their fear of missing out. And then once that begins to peak or plateau, then you get a sort of precipitous decline. This happens very often with uh, excitement about new technologies. And then, but after you hit, the, you, you hit the bottom of the Gartner hype cycle, you get a shakeout. You get more market discipline. The investors start to be savvier. They, want to, they require more, more than just a white paper, for example, in cryptocurrencies. They, right. they might require uh, actually seeing some existing technology and want to understand who the team is. Whereas before they were just throwing money at everything under the sun and hoping to, to, to strike it rich. The, the, um, as we come out of this, this particular hype cycle and the trough we're currently in, we're going to see a lot more market discipline. And I think the evolutionary algorithm of, 
the token marketplace is going to start to really um, give us stronger organizations and organisms right. in the space. Right. That's my hope anyway. And I, I see no reason to think it won't. It's happened before. Um, I think Gardner largely gets that right. Right. I mean, like I, like I said, I think, um, like we said, technologies are always um, catalysts for, for new stages of development and new social movements. So, but let's, let's talk a little bit about this, the social singularity. So, to, to get to get the basic idea across what what do you mean with with singularity in that in that case yeah so there's a process that your your listeners may be aware of uh, called the technological singularity and this was popularized by Ray Kurzweil the idea behind the technological singularity is that you're going to have Moore's law effects Moore's law being the idea that roughly computing power doubles every 18 months and that means better, faster, cheaper computers over time. But it also means ever smarter and increasingly networked computers. When you have that level of processing power, the belief is that in time, you'll soon have uh, artificial intelligence, robots, and so on, that reach general human intelligence. And that should be well, Wasn't that supposed to be the year 2042 or something like that? I've heard a couple of, uh, I've heard a couple of um, uh, extrapolations on this from, from Ray Kurzweil. And, and I don't know um, what, that, what that moment is exactly, right. but that sounds, that sounds like a reasonable estimate to me. Right. Uh, I think there's some deeply problematic uh, aspects to, to some of this AI thinking in terms of what intelligence means and how it works. But, um, uh, because I think the human brain and human consciousness is far richer than people, than a lot of people are, uh, you know, understand. Right. That's not to say that I don't think that something like the technological singularity is likely to happen, but it, some of it depends on how you measure intelligence, uh, how you, how you define intelligence. And, sure. um, we're, we're far more holistic, uh, evolved beings with consciousness and sentience than uh, current AI programs are. So we have a long, long way to go. But that doesn't but mean I don't 20 think 20 years are a long time. for. for that's right. So that's, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so just to, 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 to uh, let's just to concede then that that's likely to happen. And I think maybe you agree. It looks like maybe you do. Yeah, I've read Kurzweil, I, I must confess, like 20 years ago, and I was always like a great supporter of his ideas. I really like his idea. And, and I mean, it's science fiction to imagine that uh, we can upload our, our consciousness into a computer by, I don't know, 2045 or something like that. Right. But, and but this is Robin Hansen uh, writes about this in The Age of M, where M is an emulation where you, you have microphysical duplication of all your your, your uh, brain states and processes and are able to to render this in some sort of software program i'm i'm not entirely convinced by that i think uh there's uh the, the if if it's it there might have to be a medium of instantiation that we we would call neuromorphic which means it has to not just be software but also have some sort of wetware instantiation that's similar to a brain but but that's just that's neither here nor there. The, the basic point is I think we can all agree that at some point it could be possible to instantiate something very, very similar to human brain states and therefore uh, achieve a level of intelligence and consciousness. Now, so as long as we are on the tra trajectory, you know, so as long we can, we can presume that it will go on and that there's some form of artificial intelligence which passes this Turing test. I mean, it, it obviously has just passed the Turing test, I guess, two years ago, last year, the, the AI, I guess. So, <clears throat> yeah, that, that, uh, that kind of stuff is really interesting and really is starting to show that we could be very much about to hit the exponential portion of, of this where, where Ray Kurzweil would say, what? I told you so. But it, it invites us to be concerned about mass displacement in terms of the robots taking our jobs or, you know, um, that automation and AI in combination will, will, will displace en masse 
you know, great swaths of humanity who will be unemployed and what are we going to do? Um, you know, what I try to do in the book is, is first is to temper a little bit of those concerns, but what you asked is about what the social singularity is. So let me, let me just, let's, let's, let's step yeah. back. So, so the technological singularity. So because Correct. Um, originally the term singularity stems from physics denoting, I guess, a, a black hole. That's the, mm. that's the idea. Yeah. So, It's a, it's a, it's sort of like uh, in physics, the ge uh, sort of where m matter and energy, m massive amounts of matter and energy are compressed into a geometric point or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. So, and, and why, why do you know why Kurzweil used the, the, the term singularity in his context? I think it was because of either um, uh, Werner Winge. In a 1993 paper, Werner Winge uses the term. And prior to that... Denoting what kind of event? He's the one who really... Uh, there was Prior to that, there was uh, John von Neumann. Right. In, uh, the, 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 the computer architecture specialist had, had some sort of reference to it, but I don't remember if exactly if he used the term singularity or not. But certainly Werner Winge did in, in his 1993 white paper on the matter. He describes the machines as waking up. Right. So this isn't Kurzweil's term at all. He just popularized right. it. Okay, so, so the moment the, the, the machines wake up, that's the, the, the technological AI singularity, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the way most people describe it, right. or at least parody in terms of intelligence. I mean, there's a couple of ways you can describe it, and Kurzweil probably has very, very specific idea but uh but that's that's generally the idea the moment right. the robots wake up right right good and so now, now we have a base for for the social singularity yes kind of yes so so everybody you know is understandably concerned about about the technological singularity um, wait, 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 wait. Are they? Okay. Because, uh, because I saw a video of you and you already uh, um, said so. But I, I was wondering, is that, is that really the case that everybody's worried about that? I mean, I'm not worried about that. And I, well, I, would, I wouldn't say everybody. I think, I think most, most concerned thinking people are, are, are concerned about it. And if you, if you have heard, for example... Uh, some of the interest in the universal basic income, right. which has become perhaps, you know, the most popular policy proposal in the world next to, you know, a carbon tax for, for mitigating climate change. People are very, very interested in the idea of universal basic income. And the reason almost universally they cite the need for universal basic income is due to mass displacement that is coming due to automation and artificial intelligence. Right. So you're right. I, when I say everybody, um, everybody is a, probably a small universe of people that, that I listen to and pay attention to and read. But the, your average person on the street, uh, the guy who, um, who you know, pulls for um, F.C. Bayon or, or, or whomever and, and is just, you know, drinking beer probably doesn't worry about the robot apocalypse as much as uh, some of the intellectuals do. And that's fair. Right. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, people who are aware of the technological singularity are generally concerned about mass displacement. And so, but here's the other thing. Even if you're not, I think thinking about the, the, the social singularity is important for the following reasons. There is, if we call uh, the approach to the technological singularity artificial intelligence, let's call the approach to the social singularity uh, collective intelligence. Right. We are every day improving our collective intelligence and we use technological means to do this, but it's primarily um, what we might think of as dumb networks. So we're not, um, we're just making it, we're making it easier to collaborate and to reduce transaction costs. This is a, this is a, an economist's way of speaking, but when we make, Innovation, in some sense, is a way to reduce the cost of coordination, collaboration, and transaction. What humans do together and do well. When you have te technologies that make this uh, it better, 
better, faster, cheaper coordination, collaboration, and collective intelligence. And I mean, there is a, there is a level of intelligence that we can unpack in a minute with respect to that word collective. Um, we can take it too far potentially, but, but the idea is if we can reduce those transaction costs enough, we're going to be very, very formidable as, as a species in doing, generating prosperity, doing good things, and leveling up relative to each other. And I mean that in a spiral dynamic sense. I think um, our ascent uh, into the second tier will happen by virtue in great measure uh, due to improved collective intelligence. Um, that, that may not ha- happen uniformly. It is not likely to, uh, but at least more and more people will be able to, um, to transcend first tier and into second tier type of thinking and, and, and actually in the way they organize themselves and the way they actually work. Um, there's even a, 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 an expression teal organizations that is pretty funny. That is a, a sort of a reference to turquoise teal and right. spiral dynamics integral that um, it, we're, we're, we're already seeing organizations transition out of uh, sort of dominance hierarchies and into collaborative uh, collaborative frameworks like holacracy. And I'm uh, very happy and proud to have Brian Robertson on our board of board of trustees. And he's the, 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 the founder of holacracy, right. but these forms are starting to really become uh, they're, they're, uh, rapidly adopted and people are seeing how generative they are and the collective intelligence that is possible through adopting these new rules and new tools is, uh, is quite profound. That I believe is going to keep us on a parallel track with the technological singularity until we eventually merge with the robots. Right. So, so let me get this straight. So, um, would you, what, what is it exactly what you mean with collective intelligence? And do you, and you answered the second part of the question already, uh, get a, do I get that right? That this is simultaneously will occur with the technological awakening of, or, or a new technology itself. I wish I knew that. Hmm. Um, I wish I knew that. My hope is that it happens the way I tend to think about it. And I, and I, if I could go back and write a, a section in the book with this specified, I would do that, but I didn't. So um, hopefully if your readers are interested in the book and are finding themselves, read it, they'll put this little mental map as they read. And that's short term, medium term and long term. Right. That's the best I know how to do in the short term. We're rapidly improving the tools and rules of collective intelligence. Uh, and in, and in the meantime, we're, uh, you know, AI is advancing at quite a clip in the medium term. I think we will have grown into our mechanisms of collective intelligence and adopted them to a degree that we see the profound benefits of it, both in terms of material abundance, but also hopefully spiritual, uh, spiritual abundance, as it were, um, or spiritual uh, development and well-being as human beings. That said, um, uh, in parallel, the, the the artificial intelligence in the medium term, whether it's you know whether that means in ten years or twenty, I can't say. But I think the the point at which we start, we, w- we would start to see mass displacement as a result of automation and AI of certain kinds of jobs. We're going to see a parallel process of improved collective intelligence that's going to absorb some of those problems so that, so that uh, yes, certain things will go away, uh, you know, buggies and buggy whips went away when we, when we saw the advent of the automobile. Likewise, I think we're going to see a lot of jobs in certain kinds of industries go away and be taken over by, uh, be automated or taken over by robots. And yet we're going to see new industries emerge by virtue of collective intelligence technologies. And so what, so the, 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 the massive concerns about displacement, if this happens, if the processes happen in parallel, we're likely to see a great churn, but we're not likely to see devastating uh, displacement of people, uh, zombies, zombie armies of unemployed or something like that. 
So I, that is the, um, and that's really, you know, the optimistic punchline of the book. Right. But you, you, uh, would, would, would you care to um, elaborate more on collective intelligence, what you mean by that um, precisely? Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's a tough... Um, So it's easy to get into magical thinking with collective intelligence and the use of the term. We, um, we think of our brains as an emergent, an emergent phenomenon. Our minds are an emergent phenomenon of our brains in some sense. And it's a very, very complex structure. But our brains work in kind of unitary fashion to make up an eye or a single perspective You have one and I have one. But if we connect with each other in, in the manner of neurons, and millions or billions of us are doing this, some people think it could be possible that some single or unitary noosphere could develop that thinks and feels. You mean that um, by means of spiritual in a, in a spiritual context or by by means of technological technological connection what what, what well that's the, the 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 people who are into the singularity movement think that it could be both right um but what do you think about the it subjective experience of of this kind of um hyper networking of millions of minds could be spiritual in nature according to those who believe in, in, in the, the singularitarians who have a quasi-religious view of this stuff, right? right. Um, I would just say I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I mean, we have seen in layers of the adjacent possible as, as uh, systems become increasingly complex and layers of complexity build atop, you know, the other we had cells, we have... Um, organs, we have bodies, we have brains, and, and all of this it has evolved over millennia to, to this exceedingly complex and interesting being. So to think that our networking our minds in such a way that we not only merge in, in so, or some sense are able to communicate with each other, but with artificial intelligence, that this would create some kind of new layer or new noosphere is is an interesting thought but one i'm not prepared to embrace just yet what i mean when i say collective intelligence and i don't think it's entirely magical thinking i just think there's just so much there we don't know when i say collective intelligence i think of um I think of a, or let's put it this way, in, this, in the social singularity is a point I define as when our relationships become more lateralized than they are hierarchical, okay? So that the information processing problem of hierarchy, which you have information going up and down chains of commands and people executing, you know, uh, executing commands and upsourcing their responsibility for independent thought to managers or to central authorities, right. that's a terrible information processing problem with time. It, it works great for short, short term, you know, situations like battle in the 19th century. But when it comes to highly complex situations, it's, it starts to fail as a system. And that's why we're seeing so many of these large corporations and, and, and other great big entities becoming more lateralized in their relationships rather than hierarchical. I, I have to think about how, how the media landscape is changing in that regard, because obviously it was hierarchical uh, structured with the, with, with the normal media and television, but now with, with the advent of, of the internet and especially podcasting, you have and, and those long form podcasts, you have the ability to exchange information very rapidly you know, and to exchange memes. I, I'm, I don't mean this in the dynamic sense, but in the Dawkins sense, like these information units, which we can, you know, we, we too, we, we both, we have this conversation now, this podcast and exchanging memes. And, you know, I will, I will take it with me and into the next 
podcast and I don't know what you will do with this kind of information, but you know, there are so many podcasts out there and they're all lateralized. It's not, it's not, there's not this New York times structure, which zones in and specific information to, we, we have to transport in order to sell our, our magazine. So that's, that's I, I find this quite, quite interesting how even the, the, the media landscape is shifting in that regard. That is just a beautiful and eloquent example. Um, I couldn't have said it better. You, you've absolutely nailed it. And I talked about that uh, to a very great degree in the book uh, where media is, is one example. I, I, I admit um, my being influenced in this regard, particularly by a fellow named Jordan Greenhall, who is a really interesting mind. And he, he describes what you are talking about in terms of the New York Times example as the blue church. The blue church being this, a way of establishing coherence by um, having essentially a broadcast model where the end units or end nodes are sort of passive recipients of good information. And the central authority is the steward of of the truth, the light, and the good, uh, and um, and we're 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 getting to a point where that model of social coherence no longer holds sway, and it's primarily due to the kinds of information processing problems that I right. that I described, and and the the networked or sort of hive mind nature of alternative media and those lateralized connections. So if we're getting to, and he describes these new these new. Uh, phenomena as phenomena of collective intelligence. And I think he's right. Right. You are right, therefore. Right. So, so again, to, to collective intelligence. And collective intelligence would then be what? If, if we uh, collect, uh, lateralize our, our relationships and our way of exchanging information and um, doing transactions. Yeah. So what it looks like... Um, is going to depend what collective intelligence will look like for certain spheres of activity will depend on context and depend on the emergent models with which we experience, we experiment. But ultimately it will be uh, more or less a, a great lateralization where we can opt into, and this goes back to the idea of systems. If we can think about, uh, social systems of all kinds as being opt in and opt out, you start to get a massive evolutionary fitness landscape to go, to go to Dawkins kind of thinking. Right. And the sort of, uh, you know, and the notion of memes traveling through these systems is interesting as another separate question, because sometimes what travels through system, um, uh, our media systems is not always true. Fake things can get legs and the mimetic power of, of lies is, is profound and strong, but that's also true in the old structures as well. We have to rely on angels at the New York times and they're not always there. Sure. Um, but um, that being said, the, the, the specific instantiations of collective intelligence um, are, go are going to be hard to anticipate, but we can think of a, a couple of examples. Um, the f one of the first being Bitcoin, right? So we have these dumb networks, as it were, these, these um, protocols of interaction that don't require central authorities. That allows for an increasing, an ever-increasing and ever-evolving level of complexity in the Bitcoin ecosystem. I think the same can be said for other kinds of interaction, not just currency exchanges or, or purchases or what, you know, uh, stores of value, what people use Bitcoin for, which is a very narrow sphere of activity. We're going to start to see the application of these kinds of protocols in other, in other, um, system forms for example, and the, the rules that govern us. For example? Well, interestingly enough, one of the, one of the guys who anticipated this stuff uh, long ago, I, th I think he's so brilliant that he came up with this, was this fellow named Paul-Emile Dupuis. Dupuis was a Belgian thinker in the mid-1800s, 19th century. And he came up with the idea of panarchy, 
And it's also called polyarchy. And the idea of panarchy is that you could choose, you could choose your government in your dressing gown and slippers, right? right? You could, you could essentially opt into any sort of governance system it for for him for for Dupuy it was it was as simple as going to the local administrative office and instead of voting, joining a club or an association of of governance. And then if there were any conflicts between and among these governance structures, there would be uh, what he calls a fairly simple common law uh, mechanism for adjudicating those disputes. Well. I think that this was one of the most uh, interesting predictions of that era and way before his time, because now we're in a situation whereby we're already, let's use Bitcoin again as an example. We already are able now to opt into a currency regime in a permissionless way. It is no longer a factor of an accident or accident of birth or jurisdiction it is now a, a factor of governance choice. I choose to employ this currency, and so do you. You are a German living in Europe. I am an American living in the U.S., and yet we can exchange Bitcoin independently without the intercession of a third party and without their permission. This lateralization uh, inter disintermediates, get, gets rid of these, these massive third-party mediating structures just 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 takes them out of the equation right and so our collective intelligence is either going to do one of two things our collective and systems of collective intelligence they'll either disintermediate which means take out middlemen or they'll hypermediate which means make us all potential middlemen right and those two phenomena are very different from the need to count on central structures that have angels' wings to to ensure that we have uh, peaceful human uh, interaction. So, so in, in poli uh, political terms, you talk about uh, vox populi, like the the like an internet device, for example, where people can vote uh, on specific topics, something like that. Well, I I mean I think. Uh, I think personally, and I, I don't want to disparage this too much, I think uh, liquid democracy, for example, is one of the forms that is being floated right now. But liquid democracy is still democracy. What's, what that, I'm talking what's that liquid? I don't know the term. Okay. Um, so um, your, your listeners will be aware of basic majoritarian rule. Okay. And that's usually, uh, you know, 50% plus one vote means that's the rules that we adopt for some population over some territory. Liquid democracy allow, is a form of delegative voting. So if I don't know, some, so if I want to have a referendum on something or someone wants to have a referendum on some issue, they can do so. Then other people can decide either to vote on that issue to something else, to someone else rather. And that delegation process means that you um, you can have people who are more knowledgeable or closer to the action uh, represent you in a way that is different from from just voting for representatives who uh, sit in deliberative bodies and make decisions in either uh, you know a parliament or a, or a congress or something like that so <clears throat> so I you know I, I just am not that into majoritarian rule or majoritarian thinking. I think it's, it was fine for 2000 years ago in Greece and it's done a good job for democratic republics in the 20th century. But we now have the ability to, to have a lot, a, a, a lot more competing systems and a lot more pluralism. So even if we decided we need a unitary set of rules within a system, And that that has to be decided upon in some fashion. Maybe it is liquid democracy. But the profound competition among systems and among rules means that we're going to see uh, far different and far different and far, I believe, better dynamics as people opt out of and into conditions and situations that they find closer to their conception of the good and 
that are systems that are actually tested for sustainability and solvency and um, balance the concerns of the individual members with the threat of defection. Now you can't, it's very difficult to defect. Matter of fact, for me in the United States, the, I think the IRS is one of the few agencies that actually chases you around the world to get tax money out of you. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm, and I, um, you know, and I'm not saying that, um, that, that common resources for common goods is a bad thing. And the way we've gotten that historically is through taxation. But now there are so many, so many great models for overcoming collection, collective action problems and finding common purpose with people who are all over the world. I mean, I have more in common. I think I would m- m- far prefer to enjoy the f- benefits of the Singaporean healthcare system than I would the United States healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system has all kinds of problems. It's just a patchwork of, of zany craziness that's been captured by special interest. And that's largely because you can't exit this system. It, it, it doesn't have evolutionary pressures acting on it because it's been cartelized. Right. So to, to destroy a cartel, you always have to have competition. And when, when governance systems are cartelized, it's really, really hard to change them. But when you have a system where you can opt in and out of systems of governance. How would that look like? I mean, like um, from, from a practical and concrete viewpoint, what, how yeah. would that look like? Well, so some things, um, you know, we, we have to make the distinction, distinction and, and I'm really surprised we went far down this rabbit hole. It's a very interesting conversation, so thank you for taking me down here. But you have to think of things in terms of, I believe, a, a, a distinction between territorial goods and non-territorial goods. Right. So I happen to be near, nearer to Mexico than I am to New York. I have culturally more in common with the New Yorkers in certain respects. And yet in others, I have a lot more in common with the Mexicans. Um, why is it that this arbitrary border governs or changes my interactions with the New Yorkers and the, and, and the Mexican? And the answer is because of, um, of what we talked about with this, this jurisdiction attached to territory problem. Right. Right. But, um, when you think of rule sets as not being attached to territories, but being something that you can access as soon as you log on to your computer right. and commit to that, commit to that system, things look very different. We are, um, you and I are committing to just by virtue of this tool, we're committing to a kind of interchange conversation that would not have been po- possible a hundred years ago. There will be different forms of interaction, uh, interaction and exchange in the rules that govern those interactions and exchanges that won't have been possible today, but will be tomorrow. Let's make just a jump. How does artificial intelligence just fit into all of this and the development of, of artificial intelligence? How, how can we benefit from that? How, you know, how, what role will it play in, in your estimation? In, in my view, um, in the long term, I think, or in the medium to long term, I think artificial intelligence will have sentience. And I think to some extent, we'll have to begin to see artificially intelligent beings as beings, as um, entities with rights. Rights are contrivances, human contrivances. There's no such thing as an objective right of any sort right. of natural rights. People will quibble with me on this point and, um, and the, there is a, a universe in which I, I really wish there were objective rights. Cause then we could just point to them and say, look, <laughs> you know, but, but I think they're human constructs that allow us more or less to get along more peacefully than we would otherwise without contriving them. And so, um, I think we will do that. We will have to do that in some sense for, for artificial intelligent beings in the long term, particularly as we merge with them in a way. I think it will become, it will be a development sort of like nobody, 
I'm, I'm holding up right now my, my, my iPhone. And this thing is always either attached to my ear or to my ass. And I think that's true for just about everybody who's listening, right? Sure. Uh, this is not something that I would have, could have told you about 20 years ago. Uh, it was an evolutionary process. I have co-evolved with this thing to the point where, oh, when I first got a, when I first got a phone, I would walk to the other side of the house, pick up the phone, put it down, go away. But with all of the, the, com- the complicated and sophisticated aspects of a smartphone, it, it is now basically an extension of my brain and body in an interesting way. I think that process is going to continue and in parallel artificial intelligence is going to develop. Once we find ways to have a more direct neural interface when we need it, we're going to be more directly interfacing with artificial intelligence. And, and so they will be thinking, feeling beings. The artificially intelligent beings will be thinking, feeling beings. And the line between us and them will begin to blur. Right. Where, but where are we scientifically about this merge of, of the human brain and technology? You know that? Oh, very long way off. There, there, there's currently no real good translation manual between uh, activities of neurons and, and, and the analog brain, mm. which is a which is a, you know, a squishy network, excitation network, right, of neurotransmitter substances. Whereas, you know, most uh, computer science is based on binary code, you know, ones and zeros, bits sure. and bytes and all that good stuff. So the translation manual between those two, two is, is still uh, far away. And how one interfaces with the brain without destroying it is also not clear. But I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are starting to look at these problems. The neuroscience and computer science is going to n- not be such separate disciplines into the future. So um, for right now, I think in the, in the short to medium term, we're, we're only interfacing through, um, through the iPhone, I guess you could say, or through these, through these devices. But more have, and more. I see. I, I know we have imaging techniques where we can scan what the what the uh, part of the brain is is um, processing on visual information. Mm-hmm. That, that we can so that we what we see and what the brain is like processing. We have like MRI scanning techniques to to produce more or less accurate pictures of that, and that's. And the in the and the and it's getting more and more uh, the 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 level of of resolution right for the for these uh, uh, fMRIs and the like it's it's staggering right and I, 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 my hope is that we will we will learn in far more precise and non invasive ways how to in, interact with the brain right but I, I I think the state of the science we should we should we should be cautiously optimistic. Um, I I wish I could tell you more um, about the current state of the science, but uh, I know that Elon Musk just uh, invested in a company that is working on um, a computer brain interface in their, their, they have some interesting insights, but they, their claim is it's very, very early still. Mm. I mean, you know, those those events and those um, processes they you know they they don't happen from one day to another you know this leap from first tier green to second tier yellow or whatever it's called right now this is a long process and I mean there are a lot of people who think that this process itself is accelerating so we had just one hundred years of green and maybe that's the time to have uh, a leap to to a second tier, but I think you know all. What I want to say is like all quadrants have to evolve to what Wilbur called these these quadrants have to evolve mm-hmm. like simultaneously. You know the technology has to evolve our way of dealing with the with the problems, our awareness in a way of or to deal with problems, and that's a step by step process. You know you know what I mean. So you know yeah. re- regarding the question of 
if if the if the technological singularity and the the the, the social singularity will happen simultaneously or one after another, maybe you know maybe it has maybe it's both in a way depending on what time frame you choose. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So so. I mean, in the, in the time span of 500 years, maybe we can say, well, it happens more or less at the same time, but, you know, there's a little push from there and there's a little push from there and we have a scientific revolution and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and that, that's my hope. And, and you know, one of the, one of the things about so-called futurists is, is this idea that, you know, you can, you can predict the future in some way. And I, I like to exercise some humility, but I think there is hope um, in, in this direction. And I like that you bring up this four quadrants uh, the, from integral theory, because I do believe there is, at the moment, with artificial intelligence and collective intelligence, way too much focus on the left brain, you might say. Right. Okay, which is the technological and the external. Okay, so the experiential and the spiritual is being uh, underappreciated in terms of how these tools, new rules and new tools are being developed. Right. But when I think so, the, some of the future innovators are going to be those who are more empathic and are, are much more concerned with the creative, the aesthetic, the experiential, uh, how things the experience of interacting feels that perspective, that UX UI, that, um, that how are people behaving in these new models? What, what is the, you know, taking a look at more than just whether or not it works and can be done, but how, how it works and how it, you experience it when you're in the process of, of engaging these systems that yeah. is, is coming that's going to give you more of the um, the le the spiritual leveling leveling up the the emergent culture aspect of this stuff is is on its way and we're going to see a lot of innovators that come from the right brain part of of, of, of this not just the left not just the geeks and the coders right Where, whereby one one has to say these models about what the uh, sizes of the brain brain are for are constantly uh renewed i mean there, there's uh, this book of the brain and uh, its emissary what what's the name of the of the neurologist he has a completely new model of how how this sizes of the brain work and like he argues for example that it's more about order and chaos so if you if you imagine you have a dark room and you're reaching in with your hand and looking for the switch and you're like a little bit terrified of what may, might be in 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 that in the darkness, so you're more more left side. The, the left side of the brain is more activated. But if you if you reach something specific with your hand, you know, make like then more the the right side. No, no, it's the other way around. So the left side is more of the. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but so yes, but but I but I get get your gist anyhow. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, I mean, and it's a little bit of a shorthand to uh, to talk about left and right brain and in, in terms of creativity and 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 analysis. But I think. Yeah, I think your, your, your listeners get the idea. But, but there is also, you know, um, in thinking about the neuroscience of, le of the left and right brain is going to, uh, you know, can we develop technologies that act, that help us function in much more like a corpus callosum with each other? Right. That is an interesting idea as a metaphor, right? right? Because currently the geeks have inherited the earth, <laughs> but the artists and the empaths have a lot to contribute. There's just no way for them to sink. There's just there's not as they're not re as readily syncing up right now as they possibly could right. for, to really have technology impel us to the second tier. Right. I think that's, that's going to need to happen a little. Right. So but that's just a, that's just a, uh, you know, I, I, I say that with some reluctance, but, um, but I believe that, that the future is bright for the artists. I really do. Right. So, so, so just, just to, to sum this up a little bit. So the, the social singularity is a moment where 
we could say like like a collective intelligence is is detaching itself in a way from first tier you you you, you talked we start this talk about detaching um, rules from from geography geography you know and so so we have like a collective intelligence who by, by means of technology inhabit a completely new space of meaning making so so to say would you would you um, say that is a correct I think that is a, a an extremely interesting way of describing it. It's perhaps not complete, but it is certainly important, and it's at the center. Meaning making is absolutely um, um, going back to going back for a moment to the four quadrant way of thinking. And let's just let's just take the internal versus the external. Right. Okay. Um, you know, in terms of the the external the rule sets by which we live, we historically have had meaning made externally in a lot of ways. In other words, how we define ourselves and how society defines us is largely an exogenous phenomenon. So I am father. I am a worker in this organization. Um, I have a degree from this institution of higher education. The external confers meaning on us in a lot of ways. That we are beginning to author our own destinies and, and value the experiences for themselves. It's not to say we never did that before, but it's to say that we're coming to look at the experiential much more closely and appreciate the internal and have meaning be more sui generis than it has been historically. Um, So I think these communities of practice can do both for us. So if you and I can, uh, if we find common purpose in a community where the incentives of that system allow for us to help each other level up, we have, much more robust exchanges, both intellectual and spiritual. And we come to understand life is not just about having exogenous forces and lattice works define us, but, but these new lattice works being ways to help life develop fully and to, to derive meaning in different, both internally and externally, both from the community and through processes of internal change and development, that is really much more, um, that is, that gives me hope for more and more people uh, ascending into a second tier kind of, kind of life. Yeah. Right. Nice. But thank you very much that you took the time and uh, that you did that. So it was very enlightening. Oh, no, I really appreciate it. Uh If you enjoyed this episode of Ledger Conversations uh, and you want to support my work in this podcast, you can do so by using the Patreon link or the donate button from PayPal or you just can buy me a coffee. I will put the link below the episode. I want to thank everybody who already supports me. Very much appreciate it. Uh, I hope you tune in next time. All the best to you guys. Have a good one.